Hi, this is Just Ask the Question. Welcome back. I am your host, Brian Karam. With us today for our weekly roundup of the news, information, and fun things that have happened all week long is our CQ editor, roll call editor, CQ editor, roll call editor, John Dad. Uh, sometimes both. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and former federal prosecutor, uh, uh, Michael Zeldin. So uh, welcome, guys. Uh, this week, we're talking a little bit about that that Trump indictment. Will he? Won't he? He said he would. He wasn't. Uh, the rally in Waco that we can't forget. The ju- a judge rules that Mark Meadows has to testify. Corcoran did testify. Uh, have we learned anything about Donald Trump yet? And an anonymous jury in a civil case, Ukrainian war, the war in Ukraine, tactical nukes getting shot at in Iran, and much more fun. So stick around. We'll unpack it all. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me again, editor from CQ Roll Call, roving editor, columnist, publisher of the Weekly News Digest from uh, is John Bennett, and former federal prosecutor, uh, Michael Zeldin. And Michael, let's start out with, uh, well, let's start out with, yeesh, I guess, Donald Trump. So last week, Donald Trump predicted that on Tuesday, he'd be indicted. He wasn't. And by the end of the week, he was, well, by Saturday, he was campaigning on it. And the question is, I guess, in at least in the New York case, it look, we've all said in the past, it's the easiest case for him to defend. But is he going to get indicted for it? Does anybody know? Michael, you have the first whack at that. Well, nobody but Alan Bragg and his team, the Manhattan DA, know for sure whether or not uh, Trump will be indicted on the Stormy da- Daniels hush money payment. And there have been a lot of people who have offered their legal opinion about the strength of that case. I'm one who has some reservations with the caveat being that my information as is true with all of the commentators information is based on what's publicly available. And so what we don't know is in the grand jury, what additional evidence that has not been made public may make this a stronger case. But on its face, from the publicly available evidence, it would seem that while it may be arguable uh, that 
Trump made the payment to Stormy Daniels for the sole purpose of evading the federal election campaign reporting contributions, there may well be other reasons that he did it, which may undermine the ability of the prosecutor right. to get a, a conviction. And the case that I've been speaking about on CNN and others have been writing about is that of John Edwards, the former senator from New, uh, North Carolina and vice presidential candidate, presidential candidate rather, who during the course of his campaign had a relationship with someone and needed money, essentially hush-ish money uh, for the for the paramour. And he arranged through donors for that money to be sent to her to essentially cover up his affair and hide it from his wife and hide it, they said, from federal election campaign uh, contribution reporting requirements. They took him to a jury trial and he was uh, acquitted of the the of some charges and and failed the jury failed to reach a verdict on other charges and eventually the prosecutors just dropped the case altogether and so right. that's a portend of what might happen here uh, that's not a good uh, you know sort of example of how these it is a good example of how these things can go uh, sideways you remember in that case Edwards said essentially i wasn't paying to evade election requirements i was paying to evade my wife and <laughs> yeah. embarrassment um that this would bring to to my family remember bill clinton said the same thing essentially during one of his early campaigns they hired a guy named paladino a san francisco based uh, investigator and paladino was to go around getting affidavits from people who might what Betsy Wright, um, the person who worked for Clinton, called bimbo eruptions. That was her her language. Yeah. Um, he would go around talking to these prospective eruptors to get affidavits that would undermine their testimony. And that money was paid through a law firm. Nothing ever came of it for Clinton. And then in Hillary's case, remember, they paid the... Um, Fusion GPS for the steel dossier through right. um, a, a law firm. And when it was revealed, the Hillary for president campaign paid a civil fine for that. And so you've got Bill Clinton not being charged. If you've got Hillary Clinton paying a civil fine, if you've got John Edwards, who was tried and, and, and acquitted or the case was dropped, then why, as a prosecutor, would you think that the Donald Trump Stormy Daniels case would be a strong case? Any different, that, yeah. And yeah. so, and and of course, it being the very first case out of the blocks, you really don't want to lose the very first case. It takes the oxygen out of the out of the well, the, the uh, if, out of the room. Correct me if I'm wrong, but even if he's indicted first on that case, doesn't mean that's necessarily the one that would come to trial first. That. It, and we've seen him go absolutely batshit nuts this week, haven't we, John? I mean, he, it. I mean, the Waco uh, speech alone was frightening in what it portended. And I, I won't go into a whole lot of it, but I mean, not only did was he actually call he look, he did this on the site of the 30th anniversary of the Waco tragedy, and there was no 
whatever he said about it being centrally located in Texas, you pick that place for a reason. And it has a lot to do with, with Waco, but, and he said a lot of things about, you know, uh, about going after his opponents. But one of the things that was also frightening is quote, I get along well with Putin. Um, when he was talking about Ukraine, he said he wanted to get a piece. Now it looks like he'll probably end up getting the whole thing. All of that, what he said in Waco seemed unhinged even for Donald, did it not? Well, it's a continuation of what we saw on his uh, social media uh, platform all week. I mean, for over a week now, it's been mostly all caps from yeah. Trump. And, you know, you and I both heard him yelling uh, when he was the president. You could hear yeah i mean i heard him yelling some days he would be in the cabinet room having a meeting or or the roosevelt room having a, a meeting with staff or whoever or cutting videos and not happy with what was going on and screaming and he's been screaming at all of us for over a week and that continued in texas uh, uh last night yeah i mean the the, the putin quote shows what um, would be really a core tenet, it seems, of his foreign policy in a second term, which would be basically Zelensky, you're on your own. Yeah. And, and whatever whatever Putin can can take, Putin can have, because America first, whatever that means. Yeah, uh, America first as long as we're last. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you had, you said something in your column this week, sympathy for the Donald. Great headline, by the way. Thank you. Um, and, it, and it brings about the, the the big question, and Michael, something that you talked about as well, but uh, get John's take on it first. Have we learned anything from Donald Trump yet? He predicts on Tuesday he's going to get, he he fundraises, fundraises off of it. We announce it. We do all the freaking news on it, and it's just continuation of the grift. John, have we learned a no. thing yet? We haven't learned a thing. That's what I wrote, and self-included. I'm guilty. I plead guilty. I plead no contest. <laughs> um, but we have you know we but we have to cover it because he you know it is it's history number one if he is indicted or even just the fact that he's he it feels anyway like he's so close to multiple indictments that we have to cover because number one it's history number two he is the front runner i was just looking at a new monmouth poll um it's it's just the latest example he's pulled away from ron DeSantis in the field he's gaining on the pack they're not catching him so we have to cover it he's the front runner um he's got as good a chance as any other human being on the planet to be the 47th president um but we haven't learned a thing we fall <laughs> for it. this is what i wrote self-included self-included we fall for it every time we fell for it last week um i'm sure you know he'll he'll throw something out there in the next few days and we will chase the car like the um excited dogs we are <laughs> Michael. It's complicated, honestly. Part of me wants to say that we give him too much oxygen and that we're the media is making the mistake now that they made in 2016, which is essentially free airtime for what are essentially political um, announcements, things that normal candidates don't get the same type of coverage for or have to pay uh, for advertisements on 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 air. And so part of me says, you know, can we just stop that? But he's a consequential guy. I mean, he will go down in history uh, as one of the most consequential presidents 
for better or for worse, more for worse in my estimation. Um, and it's hard to ignore the consequential nature of who he is, who he was, and who he continues to be. Uh, and so I think you're in a very difficult position if you're a media uh, person to sort of figure out that knife's edge of giving him too much time versus not recognize the importance of, of when he goes to Waco and says these things, what this means for, for the country. Because even if he isn't reelected, if we're going to spend the next two years with him saying that this is the most consequential period, this is, you know, sort of like the the beginnings of the next civil war. If he keeps saying that, and he's got 30% of the Republican Party who, you know, act on every word that he says, how do you ignore that? It's not like it's some obscure member of the John Birch Society or the Ku Klux Klan or some other fringe organization. This guy um, is a demagogue and has the loyalty of a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a, a matter of context myself. <clears throat> I think that whenever you bring up Donald Trump, the first thing you have to realize is whatever he's saying is a fucking lie. So let's, you know, to your point, John, I guess what we need to do is to call it more often. You have to cover it, Michael. I don't disagree with that. But I think putting it in the context, you know, I, I think what we missed with Donald Trump and the assumption that we all made was Donald Trump is saying he's going to be arrested on Tuesday. He's got information that the rest of us don't have. He's in touch with it. The, the, so he's telling us what he knows. What he's really doing is lying. He doesn't know shit. And he's just trying to grift. And if we put, you know, he had, the, the, I think that was the, the false assumption that we made, is that he thought he that he had information, which in fact he did not have. And if we come to realize that when he steps up to the plate, no matter what's coming out of his mouth, there's a there's an agenda there and the agenda is to make money. How much money did he make between Saturday and Monday? Uh, $1.5 million. It is estimated that he made for his legal defense fund, which we all know is just going into his pocket to pay bills or whatever. That's Donald. So whatever he can grift, he's going to grift. So I, I'll, I'll end that with my, my thought on it is you can't ignore it, but we should do a, a, a much better job of putting the damn thing in the context. Yeah, you know, on CNN, to follow on your point, uh, on one of my recent appearances, they asked me what I thought of this. And I said, well, we don't know anything about it. We don't know whether it's true or just made up. But I can promise you, I said, um, that on the heels of this text that says I'm about to be indicted on Tuesday will be a fundraising request text. And the one thing that we should learn and know is, as you point out, Brian, is that most of what he does is a setup for fundraising. And so sure as, sure as day follows night, the next text, the next tweet, the next um, request out of his mouth was send me money um, because I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday. You know, it, it, it's so predictable and making sure that that is articulated is important. Yeah. I, one of the things I want to go back to, we mentioned briefly uh, in this segment before we move on is I don't think we can 
I think we do have to put it, speaking of context, I think we do have to put into context the fact that he had one of his mega rallies in Waco. 30 years, almost to the day, after it burned down uh, because of the Branch Davidian raid. And that Branch Davidian siege, <clears throat> by the way, uh, is the foundation of a lot of mistrust in government, a uh, foundation of the militia movement, a foundation for the... Uh, Oh, this uh, Second Amendment enthusiasts who want to pack a lot of guns say the government's coming to get you because in that day the government did come to get him. And uh, David Koresh, although he was a, a lunatic, did say something correct during the siege. And he said, look, they could have come to arrest me any day they wanted. I walked through town. It could have been done far easier than the way they've done it. And <clears throat> never mind that he orchestrated it because he wanted to do it. Never mind that the ATF was nuts and the FBI screwed up. Never mind that Janet Reno screwed up. But all of that aside, I think it's dangerous that he chose Waco to do this uh, speech in. And the, the context of the speech was dangerous. And I think it points to if he's going down, he's going down violently. This man will not go gentle into that good night. John, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's you just nailed it. Uh, what What's really what's going on here is Trump is using you know, more and more violent rhetoric. I don't know how you call his his post on Truth Social about death and destruction will happen if the Manhattan DA indicts him on maybe just a misdemeanor. Um, the response doesn't seem proportional for a misdemeanor, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got he, a traffic he, ticket, burn it all down. Yeah, right. I don't know how you don't call that a call to arms because we saw what happened on January 6th with the Capitol riot. So, you know, people, people do hang on his every word. They think he is some kind of Oracle and, you know, he's fighting for them and, and all evidence, like you said, points to he's, he's fighting for his bottom line and his personal wealth, wealth, I'm using quote fingers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that, that is what has become, the most troubling part of this is the rhetoric that he's using. I'm not sure where people are supposed to go do the death and destruction. Are they, are they, you know, Trump country is, is largely rural or small, medium sized towns or, or are they supposed to go to their County courthouse and <laughs> throw rocks at it or burn it down? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what it looks like. You know, some people say it would be, it would be a civil war, but, I mean, I'm picturing guys in pickup trucks with Trump flags driving around small towns where people largely agree with them. So I, are they supposed to drive to the nearest um, big city run by a Democratic mayor and protest there? So I'm just not. Or show up at Mar-a-Lago and make sure he can't be taken. Don't don't let him take well, me alive. Yeah. It turns I guess they into could another. Surround, yeah, they could surround uh, Mar-a-Lago. So I, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure what this would look like, but. I I I would not put it past Trump supporters to to go to their county courthouse and and raise a ruckus. Michael, you know, I was just looking at the Waco rally, and one of the things that's so stunning is that you see a photo of him with his hand standing over his heart, pledge of allegiance. Yeah. While a song called "Justice for All," performed by a choir of people imprisoned. For the January 6th insurrectionist acts at the U.S. Capitol um, are are singing a, a song that they, I guess, wrote, Justice 
no, they're singing and, and and they're singing the Star Spangled Banner, and and spliced in there is Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. So he's actually standing there with his hand over his heart, like pledging allegiance to himself, and also romanticizing January sixth while so this, showing video of January sixth. This could get out of hand really quick. Yeah. It well it, it it's 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 frightening actually. Yes. Yes. What was the what was the language um, that he used? Did he he said that it, it was it the the last? What was the word, Brian? That that he the last Airbender? <laughs> no, no. He 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 said retribution. He said yeah. it's uh, an important inflection point. Um, well, those are words that Biden has used. Huh. He's, Biden yeah. has often said that um, we are. In fact, in Biden's speeches, it always comes down to let's remember who we are. We are the united, and he always stresses united, United States of America, and then he gets quiet. And he says, there is nothing we can't do if we put our mind to it. We are at an inflection point. Those are standard in everyone. and, And Biden, in saying that, is talking about Trump, and Trump throwing that back out is simply trying to make fun of Biden is what I get. Right. But I thought that he said at Waco that um, that there were there. He used a phrase, I thought, that described why this was so important, what a momentous moment we were at. Um, I'm sure John yeah, Bennett he, would well, find it. What, what Trump is saying is that uh, this is the point of no return, I think, was what he used. It's, some, uh, it's something to those, words to those effect. And to Donald Trump, of course, the point of no return is after he gets indicted. And he doesn't, uh, any type of indictment that he faces, I don't care if it's a misdemeanor or a traffic ticket, he's going to go, right now they're probably in a, an unbroken dish or, or any ketchup at, at Mar-a-Lago, except on the walls. He's, well, uh, but no, I think I found the expression, I, I, I think... I think he said that 2024 was going to be the final battle. Oh yeah, yeah. that's he did. Yes, yes. The final that's, battle. What I'm, that's what I'm thinking of. So when yeah. when you when you appear in Waco with all its political significance, when you stand with your hand over your heart to a song being played, which is called "Justice for All," which features a choir of men in prison for their January 6th role, singing the national anthem, anthem intercut with Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, and he says this is the last battle. That, you know, in combination is is pretty scary stuff, which going back five minutes in our conversation explains why probably you can't ignore it. Yeah. Um, because Although, because of right. because of its because of yeah. the the potential uh consequences uh, it has well I, whether he we wins break, or loses yeah. just the process well before we go to break i'm just gonna say that if it's his final battle that's a lie too there's nothing about there's nothing about as long as he breathes he's gonna be fighting so when we come back stick around we've got more to talk about when it comes about the fights with donald trump and his legal woes so uh we're gonna take a short break we'll be right back Hey, you. Yeah, you. 
We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with us again, uh, Michael Zeldin, for, former federal prosecutor and editor-at-large from CK, uh, CK, CK, CQ Road Call. I'll get it right one of these days, John. John Bennett. And um, I want to talk now, swing now over to uh, other uh, uh, updates in the Donald Trump saga. Um, there's ruling this week that um, Mark Meadows and others have to appear before a grand jury. Uh, Corcoran appeared Friday. Uh, let's not forget that. Defense attorney Evan Corcoran appeared Friday before a federal grand jury in Washington where he was uh, supposed to answer questions in the classified documents probe that uh, Trump unsuccessfully fought to hold back. And uh, as I said, as we said, uh, the federal judges ordered several former Trump aides, including uh, former chief of staff Mark Meadows to testify before a grand jury as part of the criminal investigation and efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Now, uh, Michael, we've heard you say before that he's part of the hub. He's not one of the spokes that Mark Meadows is in effect one of the guys who could, if he flips, if he testifies, doesn't take the fifth, if he decides to come up and testify, what he says could be of great danger to Donald Trump. But before we get to that Let's talk a little bit about Evan Corcoran. What do you think we found out Friday, and what do you think it is that they would be uh, they would be looking for from him in the in far as in as much as he did not sign that letter in June, saying everything was gone, and he said some bad things about Trump. So back up. Evan Corcoran is Trump's lawyer in the Mar-a-Lago documents matter. Yes. He is subpoenaed and asked to testify about his communications with Donald Trump and what he knows about the removal of documents from the White House and then the movement of them within Mar-a-Lago. He refuses to testify and he asserts attorney-client privilege. The prosecutors go to court and they say, yes, the attorney-client privilege is important, but if those privileges involve the perpetration or hiding of a crime, then getting to the elements of the crime trumps, no pun intended, the attorney-client privilege. It can be breached. So the judge hearing the prosecutor saying we need to breach attorney-client privilege for the crime fraud exception agreed with them. And Corcoran uh, appealed to the Court of Appeals. And within two days, the Court of Appeals said the judge, the district court was correct, and he's got to go in. So he went in on Friday, I believe, and he was there for a little over three hours. I haven't seen reporting about what he did in there, meaning right. I don't know whether he asserted the Fifth Amendment to any of those questions or whether he was forthright. But the importance of his testimony is as it relates to the obstruction of justice 
investigation. Because as you said, Brian, Corcoran wrote, but didn't sign, a letter that said, we have done a thorough search of all the documents per your request, and we can attest that we have given you everything. The National Records Archives folks didn't believe that, neither did the prosecutors, <laughs> got a search warrant, they went in there and they found a whole host of additional documents. Additionally, there is video footage of the documents which were in a storage locker being moved. Uh, and that implies the possibility that they were moved to hide them from investigators. All of that stuff is assumed to be within Corcoran's base of knowledge. And that's what they want to get. Because if they want to bring a obstruction case against Donald Trump or anybody else, they need to know how did those documents get there, what happened to them while they were there, and were there any steps undertaken to hide the discovery of them from uh, the reach of the federal government. Corcoran has the, is the connection to that, or one of the connections to that, and his testimony, therefore, is, is of critical importance for the prosecutors. So do you think that, uh, John, you, you think we'll find out what he, he testified to anytime soon? Somebody's going to crack. <laughs> Somebody will talk eventually. Yeah, I think we'll find out. But, um, you know, Mark Meadows has been preparing for this day. I'm focused on uh, the Meadows uh, testimony. And we've talked about that a lot here. Uh, Meadows was at the center of, of Trump world. He was the chief of staff at the White House. Um, I would like to pat myself on the back here for a second. I may be standing outside talking to you, Brian, on Meadows' first day. I remember uh, he that. He did a TV hit, and he walked back in, and I was shaking my head. I believe it was you asked me, like, what, what's up? And I said, this will not end well for him. Yeah. It just won't. And and we all agreed. Some of the reporters were standing around chatting that day, and it hasn't ended well for Mark Meadows. He's been off the grid. We've talked about that here for months and months, and and now he's going to testify. I, I'm split on my prediction about Mr. Meadows since we all know him so well. Um, whether he'll just take the fifth or, uh, or if he might, he might tell them some things, probably not everything. Um, I'm not sure the best strategy Michael can probably talk about what he would advise Mr. Meadows to do, but I'm not sure if, if he'll stay loyal to the boss or if he's thinking about his own hide right now. I've, well, if he's thinking about his own hide, I think he'd strike a deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he hasn't done that, has he? he hasn't done he that. Hasn't, maybe he's waiting to be dragged into court forcefully, and then he'll go. Perhaps. All right, all right, I'll deal. I'll deal. God damn it! Perhaps enough. Perhaps. Enough of the torture, Michael. But, what do yeah, you think? Not a not a guy when he was a congressman, and then as chief of staff, as a congressman, he he wasn't a deal maker. He was the opposite. He was yeah. a bomb thrower, and he didn't really encourage Trump to make many deals with anybody. So, um, you know, he's he's more of a you know, I believe in this and this is what I want. And that's it. My way or the highway kind of guy. So we'll see. Well, yeah. When you're faced with the shackles and, uh, you know, the leg irons and the handcuffs, that's, that's a different matter. And I never in covering him in Congress, I never got the idea that he was a man of much, uh, heroic capabilities. That's, I don't that's a nice I'm diplomatic of you. Yeah. Michael, what do you think? Well, so we've pivoted from Corcoran to yep. Meadows. 
Corcoran, as we said, is the uh, a linchpin potentially between the, the documents and Trump. Similarly, Meadows seems to be a linchpin between the insurrectionists and Trump, and Trump as well as a witness to Trump's behavior on January 6th. If you believe remember, Cassidy Hutchinson, remember, she said that he was, go ahead, I'm sorry, but that, that testimony is already there. So it's not supposition. That testimony has been offered that he, that he that she saw and it's a firsthand witness to some of that. So go ahead. Well, that's right. What we know from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony and from the testimony of others, Meadows was there um, in in the thick of it, uh, in the in the in the run up to it, and in the aftermath of it. Remember. One of the things that occurred in the January 6th impeachment hearings was the, the, the desire of the impeachment managers in impeachment two to get testimony of Meadows or another congresswoman from Washington state when Trump is alleged to have said, well, I guess the rioters care more about me than than you that that yeah. sort of testimony right so that would speak to trump's inaction um as the events were unfolding so there are lots of different touch points between mark meadows and the events that were the run-up to and including the day of and perhaps even the aftermath of the january 6th insurrection Meadows would appear to know about the planning around the fake electors scheme. He would appear to know about the allegations that gave rise to the big lie, uh, the planning of it, the connections between uh, Rudy Giuliani and some of the other lawyers and, and Trump. So I've described this uh, in conspiracy law there are different ways of proving a conspiracy. And one of the ways that is most common is this wheel where it's a hub and spoke, where you have the hub who is you know, essentially giving out directions to various spokes. The spokes needn't know what each other spoke is doing as long as they're all in communication with the hub and acting in a coherent way uh, according to the conspiracy objectives. Meadows clearly is in that hub. He has touch points with lots of different spokes in the allegations that that relate to uh, January 6th and the false electors scheme and all the other things that we saw in the January 6th hearings. So he has to make a choice uh, to be truthful or not truthful, to be forthcoming or guarded. And I would think he's got a very good lawyer, if George Terwilliker is still his lawyer, that he has probably some personal liability, some exposure. Yeah. And so part of the thing that he has got to decide is, like um, Trump's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, am I going to go to jail uh, and continue to be loyal to Trump, or am I going to testify, a la Michael Cohen, perhaps, um, and um, break from, from Trump? And so he he's at a profile in courage, profile and in cowardice inflection point. You know, if you want, you know, 
You brought I mean, it you back want... up. I knew you... it was coming. I knew it was coming. Well, no, but I mean, the point is, the point is, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for your lead is, will Mark Meadows be a profile encourager cowardice? You know, he, he. Well, I think it's, it passes predicate. I think there's no doubt he's a coward, but how, well, coward, but it's, but it's but, play that coward. Well, but now the difference between then and now is then he could, you know, sort of fall back on the executive privilege right allegation you know yeah. um, assertions that has been done away with there are no bases for him not to testify other than perhaps the fifth amendment so that's what he has to make a decision um with so that's why i say really he's at a different uh tipping point between courage and and cowardice because the privileges that he tried to rely on have been stripped away. And so now he stands, you know, Bob Dylan saying even the president of the United States sometimes has to stand naked. So there's Mark Meadows. Uh, there's know, a mental image I didn't even, even the chief of staff sometimes has to stand naked. And, <laughs> and we'll see. Well, yeah, I mean, it's maybe too much information, but but that, that's, that's where he is. See, I think that's the inflection point is between is he how cowardly is he? Is he is the only bravery? I don't think it's bravery. It's I, he don't want to face jail versus he, you know, is he a, or is he a, so cowardly that he'll just continue to cravenly slurp up the Donnie? Uh, John, you covered him in Congress. You know him. Again, uh, his allegiance to Trump was not that surprising. The I was surprised that he stayed as long as he did. Uh, he was the one who seemed the one chief of staff who seemed to get along uh, best with Trump. But I think what we learned from you mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson and we learned from her testimony at the January 6th committee hearings and others who were in the West Wing. Um, Meadows didn't try as hard as some of the other chiefs of staff to rein in Trump. It, he kind of oh, just he encouraged he, it. He, right. He encouraged it all. And that's not surprising for a, a, a founder of the House Freedom Caucus. Um, you know, you can draw a straight line from the Affordable Care Act to the Freedom Caucus uh, to Donald Trump. I mean, you, yeah. that's not hard to do. So he came from he came from Meadows came from Meadows was a leader. Sorry, I'll get it right in a second. Yeah, <laughs> Meadows was a leader informing the movement that led to Trump's movement, the Tea Party yeah. Freedom Caucus. That's really the soil that that Trumpism and 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 the MAGA movement really grew out of. So I I have my doubts that he's going to go in there and 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 give up all the dirt on on Trump. I just I he he's too in that movement. And to turn on Trump, it would be to, in a way, turn on the movement and I just have my doubts. He's because he's a movement guy. He believes in it. I think unless if he's facing six months like Alan Weisselberg, he won't give a shit. If he's facing right. multiple years for treason or obstruction right. of justice, then he might decide that, well, what the hell? Yeah, uh, six months you can read a couple books. Yeah. It, you know, you get away from the family for a while. It's a bit of vacation. <laughs> You're going to relax. <laughs> do a little me time <laughs> maybe lose a little weight you know uh -huh. it's like going to club med that's <laughs> six months bed, is, right. not, is not the the, the uh, impetus that uh many would think it is i mean my god if you've served in congress six months in prison is probably an up upgrade 
but that's, that's you know, <laughs> but what do I know? <laughs> Last thing that we talk about before we go to our next break is um, in the, in the, and Michael, you can help us uh, sort this out a, a bit in the uh, civil case that Donald Trump is facing. They are deciding an anonymous jury. And, and I, I, you know, usually that's reserved for mob bosses. Do they voir dire and, and uh, uh, anonymously? Do they, I, I mean, how does that work and why? This is an interesting case. This Jean Carroll yes. case is very interesting. So she has sued Trump. Uh, uh, there are two separate lawsuits, uh, essentially for defamation, uh, based on her allegation that he raped her and then made defamatory comments later about it. One case is pending in the Court of Appeals where the Justice Department has argued that Trump said what he said in the course of his presidential duties, which if the Court of Appeals rules that way, will get rid of that case essentially altogether. But assuming the cases are still going forward, two things are interesting. One is that in that case, the judge has ruled that other people who have made similar allegations can testify. So it's not going to be a he said, she said. It's going to be a he said, they said. They said, yeah. And so you're going to get to hear the Access Hollywood tape, and you get to hear from two other live witnesses who make the exact same claim that that Ms. Carroll said, which was that they were assaulted sexually by by Trump. So that's a big deal because that is what essentially bring, brought down Clinton in the Monica Lewinsky case. Remember, she yeah. in uh, rather in the Paula Jones case. The, in the Paula Jones case, they said they could bring in other testimony, and that was Kathleen Willey and Monica Lewinsky. And those that pattern uh, ultimately led to um, Clinton's agreement to settle the case. So that's one thing to people to keep an eye on: what's going on with those other witnesses and. Will the Justice Department uh, get Trump out from under one of those cases? The second thing, which is what you asked me about, was the keeping of the jurors anonymous. And that means from the, the, the press. That means that their identities won't be known. They'll be known to the lawyers in the courtroom. They'll get to the lawyers and the judge will get to um, do the jury selection. Um, but the, the identity of the jurors will be, uh, essentially the jurors will be sequestered and their names will not be, uh, revealed. And that's because we've seen with Donald Trump and his supporters that people who go against Donald Trump face physical threats of violence and the judge as Bragg did this week. As, as and as the judge has properly recognized that it has a chilling effect on prospective jurors and the criminal justice system and he's going to do whatever he can or she can the judge I forget which um to make sure that these jurors are are protected so yes Brian it's unusual in the ordinary civil case but this is not the ordinary civil case and so these jurors need to be protected yeah. No. So these jurors need to be protected. Yeah. Yeah, John. I, yeah, you know, 
before we take our next break here, I'll leave you with a last word on that. It didn't surprise me, but at the same time, and, and nothing surprised me about Donald, but you would kind of expect it, wouldn't you? After all, I mean, we both covered that White House. We know of the of the threats. It's not that far fetched. No, none of it. None of it is is that far fetched. Um, I, I I'm just struck. I was sitting here listening to Michael, and I glanced at the clock. We've I'm struck that we've been going now for almost an hour, approaching an hour. We have talked about nothing but Donald Trump. I know. He's been out of office for, what, two years? Yeah, we still have to talk about the thing that may kill us all, the war. But that's... Right. <laughs> So I just find it, I find it uh, not amazing because everything with Trump could, could be defined that way. But here we are, two years out of an election and two years of him as a civilian, and he just still dominates everything. The current president just had a very important, uh, we all say Canada and chuckle, but yeah. economically, trade-wise, Canada is very important to the U.S. economy. Uh, that's leading uh, leading uh, destination of U.S.-made products. So, you know, the current president just had a very important summit with the Canadian prime minister, and it was an afterthought because it's just all Trump all the time right now. Um, and it's it's no it's no coincidence that he's gotten himself he's using all these court cases and all these investigations uh, to his advantage. And, you know, we, you and I and, and, and others get these fundraising emails. Um, you know, he's, he solicited, he solicits on truth social uh, for campaign contributions. So it's just, it's just really, really, I guess, amazing. I just keep coming back to that. It's really amazing that, that he still dominates everything and he's pulling away. I know it's early primary hasn't really started. I get it, but He's putting distance, despite all of this, he's putting distance between himself and Ron DeSantis in the polls. It's just, it's remarkable. It's its frightening to me, but what do I know? <laughs> We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, well, we've got to talk about the Ukrainian war and uh, the threat of tactical nukes in the battlefield. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me again, editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call. Got it right this time, John. John Bennett and, and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And uh, when we went to break, John, you were talking about how Donald Trump dominates the headlines. And yeah, and, and one thing that we really need to talk about and I is the fact that we are facing right now the, the <clears throat> president of Russia has said he's going to put tactical nukes out in the battlefield and in talking with uh, or, or nearby in a nearby country and um, 
the, and then you have NATO uh, talking about doing uh, close order uh, flyover drills at the same time uh, uh, Russia forced down one of our drones into the Black Sea. The tensions continue to rise in the Middle East. We've had uh, Iranian surrogates shoot at uh, uh, Americans and kill them. Uh, it's a very dangerous, very dangerous time for the world. And at the same time, we're still talking about Donald Trump and can't get him off our plate. But let's start with Ukraine and the and the war there. The, you know, Donald Trump would like to walk away. I have to say his name again. He w- wants to walk away from it while the rest of us are talking about trying to support Ukraine. I've been told, and there are people in the NSC said, look, we're all in. And you know, our, our sources, we have similar sources in the NSC. You know what I'm talking about. We're all in. This is, we're going in. Well, this is, this is a surrogate World War III at this point, isn't it? It's a proxy war. There's no doubt about it. And and we're in right now. The Biden administration is in. Uh, that would change on January 20th, 2025. If Donald Trump is elected to a second term, I believe, you know, they know how to do this now. And the executive orders would be waiting. And I assume that he would sign orders, pulling back aid, stopping the turning the spigot off, essentially. And Zelensky would be on his own or whoever the president of uh, Ukraine might be uh, in 2025. So, you know, Putin talking about, you know, moving tactical nukes around in Eastern Europe, um, that that's why that, now we're in the big leagues. Now this is major league baseball now. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I'm not a, I'm not a, a retired general military strategist, but, you know, how do you not, uh do more to help Ukraine if he does that. You know, how does somebody like Joe Biden not do more? But I don't know what that more would need to be. I don't know if that unlocks uh, F-16s and and some more advanced weapon systems uh, like that. We do know that there were some Ukrainian pilots here um, that got some training on F-16s. So um, I'm, I'm not sure what the more it would be, but Joe Biden would have to answer. And, you know, you can't just allow Putin to grab countries and grab territory and uh, and and, and, and place ta- right and, and place tactical nukes uh, places. There are reasons that we've had treaties with the Russians over the years to to kind of serve as guardrails for nuclear weapons, ours and theirs. Now they've walked away from the New START treaty. So I guess he feels free to do this. Putin, this is where you, you this is where the U.S. really needs uh, some some solid and reliable back channels, and one of them has to be the Chinese president uh, Xi Jinping. Um, he he's the one that can he's one of the ones I think that could get Putin's attention and say, well, "How about we just leave those tactical nukes where they're parked, there, buddy? Let's not let's not move those around and and really escalate this thing. Not that it's not already escalated with thousands and thousands of people dead." You bring up but, an interesting point, though. When when she went to Russia, we were upset about it. But at the same time, we still continue. We have much better. And it looks like Russia, you know, Kirby in the brief, John Kirby in the briefing room uh, said that he stopped short of saying that Russia is a client state of, mm-hmm. of China, but is definitely, quote unquote, the junior partner. So sure. you have to wonder if she going to Russia actually might have 
uh, and it, it might present us to, with an advantage that we might not have had before. Now, we're all laughing at their idea of a ceasefire because mm -hmm. as uh, Biden has said, and as Kirby has said in that briefing room, any ceasefire short of allowing uh, the Ukrainians to keep their own country is unacceptable. But I, I find I, I'm, I'm with you. You bring up a very interesting point. Is she going to end up being that back channel? And if he does, that that does put him uh, higher than Russia. That suddenly the two superpowers in the world are no longer Russia and the U.S. It's U.S. and China. Well, there's a large canon of scholarship out there, foreign policy scholarship, that says that's already happened. That yeah. it's us in China already. But that I mean, that would just cement. China as the number yeah. two, some would say maybe the number one. Uh, one thing about that, there was a question. It might have been uh, in one of the briefings with Kirby. I thought, I thought the question was short-sighted. That you know, you know, President Xi went to Moscow and or wherever they met and uh, and met with um, with Putin and and would would Biden refuse to speak with Xi because of that? And I just thought the question misses the point. <laughs> Someone has to be talking. To Putin yeah. and pulling him back. And if that's she, great. If it's MBS, you know, somebody's got to do it here. And there are reasons <laughs> for China. <laughs> yeah, there are reasons for China or Saudi Arabia or Turkey um, to to want to simmer this thing down and to and to stay in good graces with Biden. Um, you know, Turkey wants things. China, China's one of our biggest trading partners. So she doesn't despite what he says, he needs our economy as much as we need his economy. So the relationship has to stay on some kind of balance like it is now. Of course, it's not great, but it doesn't have to be great. Right. And, and, and and that's what Kirby said. John Kirby said in the briefing was, we, we have to be, we have to talk to China. It's, it's, it's not a, the, the way the president sees this. It's not an option to cut she off. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And I, I thought they've handled it well. And last thing I know, I'm filibustering. Biden in Canada on Friday was asked about all this, and he shrugged off the Xi-Putin meeting. And I thought he had a very strong answer. He said they've met something like 40 times uh, over the last five or eight years. This is what they do. They meet their allies. And we keep an eye on it. We monitor it. You know, we have intelligence sources. Um but you know, but I'm Biden, not going to lose my shit over it. <laughs> yeah, but Biden, like Biden, as he said uh, Friday, I was also confused by the media narrative that this meeting. I understand the timing, I understand the optics, but they have met before. This wasn't the first time that she and and Putin had a couple days worth of meetings. For them, it's a very important alliance. It's just like Biden going uh, going to Canada. Canada. So. Um, I, I thought we could have done a much, much better job covering. I thought we did a horrible job covering. Yeah, I, 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 I was, I was actually shocked at at the collective missing the point on that one. And I yeah. thought Biden, I thought Biden right, rightfully checked us on Friday. Michael, I remain completely flummoxed by by what's going on um, in Ukraine. You listen to some who are clearly isolationists and uh, I think don't help anything. Then you hear others who seem to promote the proxy war and believe that that's in the United States' interest. 
somewhere it seems to me that there should be a solution that lies in in the middle, but I don't know who is promoting that point of view. The notion that the United States says, well, this is up to this is up to Zelensky. Uh, any sort of peace negotiated settlement is all on the Ukrainians. That's a bit laughable. Yeah. It's it's on it's on us um, as much as anybody else. If we said, look, you know, the spigot's going to dry up, make a peace deal, then you know, that, that's 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 leverage. So I mean, there's a lot of disingenuity. That's the word. Disin, dis, disingenuousness. Yeah. That's the word. There's a lot of disingenuousness um, all around, and and as a consequence. My pea-sized brain doesn't allow me to process it, you know, with the type of analysis that I think this situation requires. I just don't know, Brian and John, what the right answer is. I will say this: I and in, in in I don't think any of us knows the answer to that. I think the person that's most likely to know the answer to that is Biden. He knows she well. He spent many years on the international stage. And mm-hmm. his take on it in that brief in that uh, press conference in uh, whatever it was it was a bilateral short two or three question press conference in Canada. I think uh, to your point, uh, John, it pointed out exactly how far uh, away we are from understanding what's going on, and that Biden seems to have a much better handle on it than than we do, and we're. We're screaming cats, and he's going, no, it's dogs. <laughs> and he should know he's in the room. But it's just dogs doing dog things. Yeah, like, it's just dog was, doing, dogs doing dog things. What do you want? I, yeah, I, that, that's how dogs say hello. Yeah. 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 Ooh. That's, I was, so, yeah, again, I was, I was, I was just baffled why we covered it. That way, you know, they've well, been at this for a long, long time. You know, the only question I asked in the briefing room, and this is still my, it, it, it seems to me that we're kind of missing the point. And as you said, having she talk to Putin isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's something that, you know, like somebody's got to talk to the SOB. And yeah. if if Biden has a relationship with she, and he's always talking about how he was sitting on the frontier or on the Great Wall of China or something with Xi. And, <laughs> and, 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 so what, what's America about? Possibilities. You know, that's his big line with Xi. So apparently they, you know, it almost sounds like they sat on the back porch, smoked a little weed and, and started, started, you know, philosophizing. But if he's got a relationship with him and he, and he does, and he says he still trusts it, well then at some point in time, I don't think that Xi and Putin meeting is necessarily a bad thing. Last right. question I'll ask before we leave. Yeah, I, you know, you can't. We can't. We can't. We we've left sports till the end. And look, we've talked Trump. We've talked the the annihilation of the world, but we've missed March Madness, and all the number ones are down. And so, who's left, and who do you think's going to win? And I'll start with John. Pick me a winner for the March sixteenth, <clears throat> uh, March Madness. You know, UConn is crushing people in this in this tournament. They're they're a bit under the radar uh, right now, which is odd because they you know they used to be uh, one of the 
yeah. almost a blue blood program and they fell off. Their women's program is of course uh, amazing. One of the, one of the best ever, uh, but the men's program is back at least right now. Um, so I'm going to have to go with the Huskies. Husky drills. Huskies. What about you, Michael? Well, we participate in a betting pool, uh, and both my son and my wife have picked picked UConn to win the whole thing from, from the outset. Uh, I think my son, because he's friends with Emeka Okafor, the wow. person who won the national championship for UConn back in the day, and uh, my wife, because she hails from Connecticut. Uh, and to John's point, when you look at the game they played against Gonzaga last night and beat them by nearly 30 points, the number two team in that bracket, yeah. which is it's a storied program, you have to think that when you look at the, the, the remainder of the field with no other number ones, no number ones at all in, in the field, that UConn's size and quickness and outside shooting prowess probably make them the favorite plus i've got you know you know my retirement based on the winnings of the uh of the of the, of the pool oh it's a tough room my retirement my retirement's in about i was gonna say you know i would love to see the winner of a uh, san diego state and creighton win win it all but i sure, don't that'd be cool that'd that be would really be really cool. cool that's what i would love to see is the winner of that game went when went it all. Unfortunately, I have to go with UConn because yeah. I just don't think there's a, a program out there as strong as they are. And and I, I I would say, you know, Michael, everything you said is true, but it's the coaching at UConn that I find to be very good. And uh he's got those he's got those kids playing. And so well, he, you know, the coach, the coach um is from a, a storied uh, family of player, mm-hmm. players, players, yeah. and and coaches. I mean, his dad's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, or I think St. Anthony's uh, High School program, and his brother is the coach at Arizona State, and was a two-time national champ. Um, there you at, go at Duke. You know, so who Duke? I'm, I I still remain an ABD man. Anybody but Duke. Yeah. <laughs> So we shall see, but, 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 you know, and this is all interesting uh, collateral stuff, but it's what now four, eight days to opening of um, major league. Base. <laughs> and do we need to, do we need to discuss the, the just abysmal state of affairs in Southeast Washington and nationals park, they are going with a straight face to send Patrick Corbin out as their opening day starter. He was 6 and 19 last year with a an ERA above 6. Um you know and he was great in 2019 when when they won the whole thing. Yeah. But you know they and they're they're stuck with that contract. Um and you know he 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 deserves to never buy another beer in in Washington uh for that World Series but they're he's their he's their number one starter and by all accounts he, you know, he, he. This is probably his last contract. He's probably out of the league after this, and they can't sell that franchise, at least not for what they want. And how could you, when you don't even control your own local television rights, no, and, and you don't and, get that, you don't get that revenue. So they have an unsellable franchise that is going nowhere. Are we talking about the Commanders? 
Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but John, but John, let me just tell you that um, the New York Yankees, which are one of the favorite uh -oh. teams, no, Here no, which are one of the favorite teams to make the playoffs and perhaps have a run, their their spring training record is 11 and 17, and the Washington Nationals is 12 and 12. So there you have it. They're on they're on those, a roll already. Yeah, we know on a roll. Those guys are getting a couple at bats and hitting the golf course. Aaron, yeah, Aaron Judge isn't sticking around to the seventh inning, I don't think. I, I'm going to say it this way. You can't make the bases large enough or make a game fast enough that, that the Washington, D.C. Nationals is going to be competitive this year. But that's yeah. just me. We'll see. Anyway, guys, thanks for joining us once again. The show is Just Ask the Question. And uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to letters this week. We had plenty of them. I promise to get to them next week, including the all-important question that everyone wants answered, and that is, Michael, what's wrong with the New York Yankees? Think about that when we'll be back. <laughs> Thanks pitching, for pitching, pitching. <laughs> anyway, it is Just Ask the Question. Thanks. I am your host, Brian Kerman. We'll catch you next time.